Hey everyone, Andrew Whitaker here, welcoming you to a new academic year at MIT and at Comparative Media Studies and Writing. Just a quick plug before I pass you on to our recording of this week's talk with old friend Christopher Weaver. We've got a great lineup of talks this fall, and as much as we love you listening to these podcasts, we love it even more when you can join us in person. So visit cmsw.mit.edu for our event listings. Most talks are on Thursday evenings at 5. We're foregrounding our own faculty a bit more this semester, so if you are into the Japanese hip-hop research of Ian Condry, or if you dig Nick Monfort's computational poetry, or you want to ask T.L. Taylor about how people live stream their gameplay, come spend some time with us here on campus. Okay, here we are with Professor William Arikio introducing Chris Weaver. Well, okay. Welcome right. to the uh, kickoff session of the CMSW Colloquium. Um, I want to mention this, is a, this year starts the 20th anniversary of the Comparative Media Studies program. My name is William Riccio. I'm one of the people that was here at the front end and managed to survive. That's uh, no small thing. Um, been a great 20 year run, but the colloquium has always been a really key part of it, both in the sense of bringing in folks from the outside with whom we can connect with and interrogate and think new thoughts, um, but also in the sense of trying to forge a sense of community. In the old days, we used to, after the colloquium, we would all head off anyone from the audience, but certainly the students go next door to a senior house and have that reception at Henry Jenkins' house when he was here, and that's really, really sort of really short part of the solidarity. It's a little tougher now that this is the space for the reception. Uh, I think the one tonight, we'll find out. So I'll just say it's an important occasion, not just the first colloquium of the year, but the first uh, of the 20th anniversary year. And we're privileged uh, to have one of our own with us tonight, uh, Christopher Weaver, um, who got his master's from MIT. In addition to having the initial Daltrey Scholar uh, Award at Wesleyan uh, University, where he earned double masters in Japanese and computer science and a CAS doctoral degree in physics. So he's a, a many-faceted person, as you can gather from that. Here at CMS, he's probably best known for teaching um, CMS 601, Media Industries and Systems, the Art, Science, and Business of Games. I mention that because Chris did that for years, flying up from, I guess you were in DC. All over the place. All over the yep. place, flying up here in his plane and then sort of teaching it pro bono, I will add, which is really great. But it's the art, um, business, and science part of that course that speaks to this multifaceted approach. And it makes Chris. Uh, a wonderful interlocutor on the topics of, of, of games, but life, I would say, more broadly. Um, so just a few titles. Um, Chris is the founder of Bethesda Software, where, among other things, he helped develop the real-time physics engine used for the original John Madden uh, football uh, for electronic arts, ultimately. Bethesda, as you know, is, is, is well known for the, the Elder Scrolls uh, role-playing series. He's a distinguished research scholar at the Smithsonian right now, where he's been co-directing a video game pioneers archive. So a really interesting mapping of the history of the field uh, that will take tangible form, which we'll hear about, I hope, a little bit. A little, OK. Um, research scholar and lecturer at CMS, visiting scientist and lecturer at the Microphotonics Center here at MIT, and distinguished professor of computational media at Wesleyan. He's also the former um, technology forecasting director for ABC and the chief engineer to the subcommittee on communications for the US Congress. So he's someone with, a, with feet in many worlds, a really rich and bright background, and I can't wait to hear 
What's beyond the horizon? Thank you. I want to ask your indulgence in the sense of I'm going to sort of take you all over the place today because I want to try and give you a sense of connection. And the reason that I say that is, is that how many of you are biologists? Okay, how many of you specialize in computer technology? How many engineers? Okay, I have a reason for asking. How many of you are neurobiologists or neuroscientists? Okay, so I'm going to go more heavily into that. Um, I want, to try and, I want to try and make connections for you about an area that's of great interest to me because I think you'll understand by the time this is over where my head goes in terms of why I believe that sort of the, the next chapters, the next generations of game technology, and I use that term very advisedly, are very powerful. Uh, a lot more powerful than the concept of games. By the way, who's played games at one time or another? Okay, so we're all good there. Good, okay. So we're not going to really talk much about games, because games you've done, games you know. But I want to tell you a little more about how games work and why they work, and with the hope that there are a few of you out there who are the Mozarts of your generation to take game technology and attendant technologies that foment why games are so powerful and bring it to the next level. So I'm gonna, I actually have something a little scripted so that I'm not wandering all over the place because as one of my students knows who's sitting in the audience, this is part of a generally three-hour course and we don't have that amount of time, okay? And, I, and if we have time afterwards, I'll tell you a little more about the, uh, the archive at the Smithsonian. But right now, I just want to tell you about what I call Amplius Ludo, which is over the horizon in terms of games. So, in the singularity is near, Ray Kurzweil forecasts that as technology accelerates, there will be a phase transition where humankind would become transhuman. He even talks about being posthuman. And his thesis forecasts the ways that this transition might occur and its effects upon society. So when we look at various advances in the areas of neuroscience, and communications, and computation, and artificial intelligence, coupled with material science, nanotechnology, and biosynthetics, we begin to see an impending phase shift, not too far over the horizon. Now, this is the Tian'er, a 33.86 petaflop supercomputer that's located in the National Supercomputer Center in Guangzhou. Remember, one petaflop is one quadrillion floating operations a second. In the time that it just took me to identify it, the Tian'er could have transferred the words of every human being from the beginning of time to the present twice. It was the fastest world supercomputer in 2013. This is the Sunway Taihu. It's benchmarked at 93 petaflops. It's also located in China's National Supercomputer Center, and it was the world's fastest computer about two years ago. As of June 2018, DOE's Sierra at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab was the fastest computer. It's capable of over 95 petaflops. And just this past June, Summit 
located in the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, was crowned the world's fastest supercomputer. Summit has 2.41 million cores and is capable of 148.6 petaflops with a 200 petaflop peak. This is an, a part of an RFP for the Exascale Computing Project. Now, it's very United States-centric, but what they say is very important. Exascale is a measure of application performance, and this RFP reflects that asking for a 50-time improvement over Sequoia and Titan. Sequoia and Titan were just about four or five years off. 50-time improvement in performance. In his book, The Singularity is Near, Kurzweil wrote that the human brain is equivalent to being an exaflop computer. Now, an exaflop being equivalent to 1,000 petaflops, so it's 10 to the 18th, right? Okay. To match what one exaflop computer system can do in one second, you would have to perform one calculation per second for 31,688,765,000 years. Now, if that doesn't tell you something about the speeds we're starting to deal with, think about it. Kurzweil actually believed that it'd be possible to achieve exascale performance around 2027. Computer scientists believe now that exaflop speed can be achieved by 2022, five years earlier than was predicted by Kurzweil. You have to think of the implications here. Right there. Right there. In parallel with the neuroscience behind the way games work, the increasing capability of computers, high-speed networks, augmented reality, and computational media to mimic perceived reality becomes ever more convergent. The space race has nothing on the land race. And despite the fact that many people believe that the following homo sapien brain is best identified as the following, the truth is there's a lot more similarity in all our brains than most people realize. For example, let us look at a few evolutionary aspects of the brain. Simple smiles are not all that simple. We know that when we start an interaction, we evidence a resting smile, which is neutral and non-committal. A smiling animal was generally considered non-threatening, allowing the animal to socialize with pack. This behavior also forms a part of primal learning. The closest human mannerism in this early animal behavior is this polite smile that we show in unknown or uncomfortable situations. This is the mannerism that has existed in animals before language. As our brains evolved, more complex facial mannerisms developed as a way to mimic this non-threatening behavior and lessen the potential for conflict within a group. Now, that mechanism involves further lip curl and upper quadrant squinting, which you'll recognize in a moment. It's called a Duchenne smile. We know this to be true from an evolutionary standpoint, and we're familiar with it in humans and other primates. But even more important is that this built-in behavior is also seen in babies as early as six to eight weeks. So we can see that smiling is part of an evolutionary signaling system that has evolved for a social purpose. And why is this important? Because hardwired responses influence the way we learn and react to the outside world. What we term free will is often blissful ignorance of what our brains are programmed to do. Like smiling, 
Visual illusions are hardwired. In reality, your perception of an illusion has more to do with how your brain processes the visual information than with your eyes. Let's, let's remember, after all, that our eyes have convex lenses which follow classic optics and form an inverted image on our retina. So realistically, all of us are sitting on the ceiling right now, and it's our brains that are actively rotating the images 180 degrees. And if you doubt the fact your brain is very powerful, when was the last time that you had a hiccup and your inverted image uninverted? Never. So while it's very important to sighted people, our eyes are only one of the input devices our brains use to interpret the world. For example, in certain situations, audio is heard through vision. It's a very difficult concept for more, most people to accept. So let's do an experiment. Okay, so what was the experiment? What? Yeah. The same audio experiment, just a different visual input, and it's whether you hear them in two different ways. Why? Why? Yeah, why? Why do you hear them in two different ways? Yeah. Uh, because your brain is getting visual information that the base of that mouse should be making an F sound versus. It's absolutely true. That's exactly what the McGurk uh, condition is. If you close your eyes, instantly you will hear ba ba ba. If you open your eyes, even if you know what the secret is, you will hear fa fa fa. Now, we could go and do this again now that you know what some of the secret is, but I promise you, if you go to YouTube and you look at this, as long as your eyes are open and you're looking at it, it will be fa. It will not be ba. The moment you close your eyes, it will be ba. Okay. So, what just happened? As our ears transmit analog waveforms through our auditory nerves, our eyes transmit visual information which includes facial and phonetic gestures. So the brain uses articulatory phonetics to interpret speech. In this case, you hear what you see. This is where neuroscience starts coming in because we as humans are evolutionary infivores. In fact, our neural mechanisms are designed to reward us for information collection. When we collect useful information that helps us succeed or that we perceive that we succeed, perception is the key. Endorphin molecules bind to opiate receptors on brain cells. That creates pleasure. The density of these receptors varies along our ventral visual pathway, which recognizes objects and scenes. The densest area is the parahippocampal cortex, where visual information engages memory. The richer the scene in new and novel information, the greater the pleasure. And humans love pleasure. In their book, The Playful Brain, Sergio and Vivian Pellis bring forth a deep analysis of the underlying mechanisms that influence animal behavior and the latest science behind how play behaviors affect vertebrates. Here are some important findings. 
Play occupies 20% of an animal's daily time and up to 10% of their daily energy budget. As play means there is less time to feed, it must have compensatory benefits. Otherwise, nature would have eliminated it a long time ago. Play fighting during the juvenile period in rats changes the anatomy of the cells in the prefrontal cortex. Not only does play fighting produce specific neurochemical changes in different areas of the brain, it also leads to the production and release of growth factors in the cortex in which we have seen anatomical changes. So the brain not only shapes play, but play shapes the brain. They also found that play reduces tension and stress. It fine-tunes coping mechanisms to deal with unpredictable events. This is called emotional calibration. In addition to emotional calibration, play improves cognitive and fine motor control, and play fighting as juveniles improves nuanced social skills as well as self-protective abilities. Now, the reason that I say this without getting too far afield is that Today, it's very politically correct to say that there must be zero bullying in every way, right? We hear that, we read it. If you're a parent, you probably want it for your kids. But according to the Pelices, this may not be good. So, so you have to be very careful in terms of what you want in this moment versus what the potential issues are down line. And the palaces have pointed to many very interesting things. And uh, the rat neurochemical structure is very similar to humans, which is why they're used this way. So we have to start asking ourselves questions in terms of what's in the laboratory and how it's being applied societally. Right now, it's really not. But in any event, the important thing is, is that relative to body size, humans have the largest brain. And humans are the most playful of all species. At the University of Washington, biologists found that play changes actual gene expression. This is what we mean when we say that play shapes the brain. Play is a critical component of who we are as human beings. So are associative memories. A recent article in uh, the journal Neuron established that unfamiliar contextual associations created new memories by repatterning individual neurons within 300 to 500 milliseconds forming episodic memory formation. Episodic memory is the ability to consciously recall experienced events and situations that relies on rapid and effortless formation of new associations. If you take a look at this, average normalized spike density before and after learning showed a significant increase in the response strength of the NP stimuli after learning. And why is this important? This is especially impressive when you consider that it takes humans somewhere between 200 to 250 milliseconds just to register something neurologically. What does this mean? A large proportion of the mediatemporal lobe neurons expand their selectivity to encode specific associations within just a few trials. Our brains repattern associative memory events as fast as we can intellect a new scene and its attendant associations. So except for those unique individuals with hyperthymesia who can remember every life experience. We mortals simply lack the search engine capability to harvest all our episodic memories, but they're there. This associative memory capability evolved in human beings to spot important patterns. 
Perceiving subtle movement along with echolocation, right, two ears, was key to human survival. That's why it is there, and that's why we are still here. But the deeper issue is how we're applying that knowledge to today. Early picture books and zoetropes took advantage of this episodic pattern recognition to create moving scenes. This is the primary way we came to understand the relationship between speed of image and visual persistence. In 1986, when the Lumiere brothers first showed their silent film, La Réveille de Tron, La Guerre de la Ciertat, even though it was on a white sheet pinned to a wall of a darkened room, and the audience knew that they were witnessing a projected visual image on a solid wall, people still jumped out of the way to avoid getting crushed by the oncoming train. Now, eventually, society was willing to overcome their fears for this new technology in trade for the perceived entertainment benefit. But the same thing happened with the telegraph, which used to be called the lightning. People would come down to the train station where the telegraphers were and bring things like their favorite cake or sauerkraut so it could be sent to, to far away to the other side of the United States. Because after all, if you could transmit the words, why couldn't you transmit the sauerkraut? The same thing happened with the telephone, the radio, television, and today it's happening with computers, games, and simulation. Just as young computer-playing NASA scientists, many of whom came from MIT, advanced government operating systems worked during their off hours to improve the quality of the operating systems on the hardware so that their games that they'd been playing here at MIT could work faster. So the games industry pushed graphics and computer manufacturers to improve their products dramatically from then over the past 40 years. Were it not largely for the games industry's sophisticated graphics technology and processor-intensive computers would still cost millions and be located in large rooms with special air conditioning systems. Now, most of you aren't old enough, but trust me, I remember this. And the games industry had the economic pull to force an optimization war among microprocessor and graphics manufacturers. So were it not for the game hardware, there really would have been no trickle down to so many other areas of application, such as the iPhone is computationally more powerful than the computer power of the Apollo spacecraft when the United States sent two astronauts to the moon. Two generations of computer game players are now grown and have their own children. They grew up with games, and they accept that games can be used for entertainment or repurposed for other uses. This follows the natural cycle of disruptive technology adoption, and it will only serve to broaden the impact of games on society. Current game consoles are 64 times as powerful as their first incarnations of only a decade or two ago. They have the computing power of a military supercomputer 20 years ago. And if Moore's law holds true, within 25 years, a single game console will be computationally equivalent to 10,000 human beings. And if you follow such things, that time frame puts Kurzweil's singularity firmly within the window of his estimate. So we're entering a new world of immersive computation unknown to any humans before us. Just as the telephone changed the concept of communication and the internet changed socialization and commerce, augmented and virtual reality promise to change the way we perceive reality itself. We've already established that the brain hears what it sees. 
So what about conversations over the phone where vision's not involved? When you call someone, you believe you're speaking directly to them. And that may have been true when you had a one-to-one -one relationship of analog electromotive transfer between parties. But today, you're participating in a turn-based exchange over a Poisson distributed network with a quantized and queued reconstruction of a frequency modulated data stream that's down converted to analog within a limited 3K parametric envelope because our ears best discern voice in the 3 to 6 kilohertz frequency range. And here you thought you were talking to somebody on the other end of the telephone. The truth is that telephone technology is just good enough so that your brain accepts that the simulated reproduction of the analog waveforms from the other end is real. Human beings are usually the weakest link in every technology chain, and engineers take flagrant advantage of that fact because to a computer, humans take forever to process information. Now, imagine the reality that you've long accepted over the telephone is the reality that you come to accept in the visual world. And that's exactly where games and simulation are taking us, toward immersive, real-time experiences. We're not quite there yet. I mean, there's some kind of heady neurobiological issues, but we're narrowing the gap and recent technology improvements are helping. Now, behavioral instruction machines were developed in the 1920s. In the 50s, B.F. Skinner believed automated instruction was a useful method for learning and created teaching machines similar to this 1925 device that provided four keys and rewarded correct answers by dispensing candy. Right there. Now, that device would be ideal way to teach if you were a pigeon. In our classrooms of tomorrow, we make industrially influenced educational spaces that are light and modern. We install telepresence equipment. The classrooms are open. They have large display walls. The only problem is that as nice as the surroundings may be, the mechanisms employed to teach are the exact same they were a century ago. And the manner in which we teach complex subjects such as science is still by rote. Learning facts is not the same as solving problems. If people focus on problem solving and use facts in the process, then you get retention. If you just accumulate facts, you forget them because we do not neurochemically embed information for long-term storage that has no associative context. And this is the way the human mind is wired, and you fight it at your peril. Games are really just big problem spaces. They're all about solving problems through system thinking and model-based reasoning. System thinking is understanding how variables interact in very complex ways with each other. If we're going to solve serious problems in the world, students need to understand how complex systems work. Now, games are their own form of complex systems with rules that interact and trigger events based upon your decisions. Game teach model-based reasoning. One first tries to conceive the larger model in order to better understand the goals and reasoning behind optimizing actions, to best achieve prioritized goals, and allow for the possibility of emergent actions, even those not contemplated by the original designers. We call that sort of thinking adaptive or creative. Now, in the next five slides, I want to show you, while I'm talking, I know you recognize this. William's out there going, I remember that. There you go. Right there. 
Gee, you'd almost think I'd planned that, didn't you? <laughs> the point is that we practice what we preach. We bring the games that teach STEM concepts to children that are in an underprivileged educational school in Middletown, Connecticut. 90% of these kids are on federal lunch programs. Many of these kids are considered to be problem children. They were labeled that way to me by the principal who assured me that there was no possible way that when we went in there five years ago, I think is when we started, that these kids would pay attention because it was very difficult to get their, to, to control their behavior. Now, I want you to remember that and think about that in the next five slides. Because I don't know about you, but this kid's, this kid's not, he's not wavering. He is highly concentrating. And he's not concentrating on something easy. He's concentrating on something hard. So when I talk about this stuff, generally it's because I actually believe it and practice it and we see it in the kids. System thinking and model-based reasoning are exactly what we need to implement in our schools. Next generation intelligent courseware will modulate its lessons according to student abilities. Learning can be customized to allow students of every age to develop core competencies in areas important to every person living in the 21st century. Once logical sequencing and model-based solutions are understood, generative solutions can be reapplied to other situations because the underlying logic is clear. Games are all about sequencing and logic. They work as an intellectual scaffold of increasing difficulty, challenge, and complexity while providing real-time feedback along the way. I love this slide. Liberal teaching of today tries to supply an immediately rich environment, the intellectual equivalent of throwing a child into the deep end of a dark pool. Unfortunately, while you may be able to save Sally from drowning, the only thing you may be able to save Sally from, and the only thing you've really taught her, is to fear deep, dark pools. We need to bring level design to schools where children are allowed to be naturally curious, to explore safely, and to learn at their own pace. This is not to imply that humans always want spoon-fed answers. Getting a trophy for showing up because everyone is a winner is not only absurd, but it's ultimately destructive to a child's self-image. This Panglossian worldview leads to a false sense of self-worth, and yet it's the new math of child-rearing. It stinks. In reality, humans want to be pleasantly frustrated. A problem leads to learning when there's a challenge. But you're confident that you can eventually overcome that challenge with a little additional effort. By keeping the problem at the edge of your regime of competence, the challenge produces deep concentration and focus. This connected engagement is only one of the key underpinnings in Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's seminal workflow, which is all about optimized experience. Csikszentmihalyi found two groups of people most adept at achieving flow in the shortest period of time. The first group were Tibetan monks through lifelong meditation. The other group were serious gamers. To optimize learning, you have to develop contextual focus. The cycle of expertise also incorporates mental scaffolding. Present a challenging problem within your range of capacity. Practice to achieve mastery of that challenge. Provide a slightly more complex challenge. 
apply creative solutions to re-achieve a sense of mastery. Repeat, this is the way humans become expert and this is precisely the way games work. Here's the classic cycle of mastery in games and I think you can apply it most everywhere else. You probe to action, then there's a reaction, reflection, the, the integration of the associative experience, you adapt it to correct for what you did wrong the first time, you test the hypothesis and you reprobe to obtain a better result. The behavioral linguist and sociologist Jim Yee has observed that some of the demonstrated beliefs of playing video games are improved cognition and judgment, listening carefully and following directions, problem solving, multitasking, and teamwork, learning strategy and management of resources, pattern recognition, spatial reasoning, quantitative calculation, and controlling emotions and maintaining focus. In a research study done by Daphne Belvoir of Rochester University, she found that people who played video games were far more aware of their environment, they were better at navigation, and I don't understand this one, but even at reading small print. But one of her key findings is that playing video games significantly reduced reaction times without sacrificing accuracy and that this ability extended into real world decision making. So let's talk about another area of game applications, augmented and visual reality, virtual reality. The 40 years of AR experiments in socialized laboratories funded by those who could afford the high cost of the custom equipment are now just beginning to enter the realm of public affordability. And with that affordability comes an explosion of interest in experimentation. More than any other industry, the military has known and funded much of the industry's early VR and AR development. The anecdotal evidence is overwhelming. Today's applicants have rapid problem-solving skills and the best hand-eye coordination of any candidates in the history, in the history of the military. The transition to pilotless vehicles is virtually seamless and it's no accident that controllers for UAVs are virtually identical to game controllers, thereby taking advantage of already learned behaviors. Vehicle simulators provide situational awareness and emergency training. Every operator would be better if they were familiar not just with how to operate their vehicle, in this case a ship, or in this case a train within the standard envelope, but at the hairy edges. And I know about you, but if I'm going to be at the hairy edges of flight, I want it done in a simulator. And so do you. You never would want to do it in the real thing. And in the area of visualization of complex technical material, there can be little doubt that visualization of atomic structures and virtual devices in 3D shared over the internet will have a material benefit on collaboration across distance. Another area, VRET, VR Exposure Therapy. It's a promising anti-anxiety treatment and pain management therapy rooted in games that allows patients to confront anxiety-triggering events. Now, who here is scared of spiders? Okay, it's all right, you can say it. I'm scared of spiders, arachnophobia is very common. This type of VRET technology allows patients to be immersed in a realistic but controlled 3D environment. By varying the transparency, 
of the, of the spider and then feeling the tactile touch sensation as you're looking through, what you do is rather than getting that huge vasovagal response that makes you go out like that, your brain basically starts looking through the spider going like, there's something wrong here, so I'm, I'm not going to faint. I got to figure out what's going on here. And your brain takes up so many cycles thinking about what's wrong with this picture that you start interfering with the mechanistic cycle that keys in that vasovagal response. So the point is, is that the ability to modulate this exposure and intensity of experience is a major factor in its success. It's, it's one of the most beneficial therapeutic approaches that's ever been attempted in this. And it has lasting responses. So there's a growing body of research that supports the technique. So it's actually been shown to be more effective than any other traditional form of exposure, such as mental visualization or photographs. And it has a demonstrated effect that lasts. So this therapy holds such great promise now for many other anxiety disorders. And it's starting to be used that way. Games are used to attenuate patient discomfort as engrossed game players have higher pain thresholds. This is one of my favorites. At Johns Hopkins, professor of neuroscience and stroke rehabilitation specialist John Krakauer uses games to help victims with partial paralysis retrain their bodies to compensate for the neurologic damage to their brains. Now, he uses force feedback devices in immersive game environments that require patients to use proprioception and fine motor adaptation to rebuild new neural pathways and regain control of damaged limbs. Krakauer's results in motor cognition promise to alter stroke rehabilitation forever. So let me give you a really quick background on John Krakauer. So the guy's a 30-year specialist of severe strokes. And being a physician, he treats severe strokes the way they've classically been taught to be treated. Patient rests for two to three weeks to allow themselves to calm down. And thereafter, insurance pays for once a week physical therapy on whichever side, because you know, strokes are basically limited to one side or the others. They're, they're not um, symmetrical. So whichever the affected side is, is put into physical therapy for somewhere between 12 to 15 weeks. This is the classic modality in medicine. Anybody who has unfortunately a family member or somebody they know that's gone through a severe stroke knows this to be the, the case. What's not often discussed, however, is that 80% of those patients will never regain full locomotion. They will always have some deficit in the appendage. So John Krakauer's position was 20% success rate is not good. We've got to up it. So he basically has patients within the second day after a severe stroke tied into this chair. And their appendage, on whichever side they were affected, is tied into these force feedback devices. And you, the patient, become a porpoise. See the porpoise? Now, I don't have to teach you physical therapy. I just have to get you to swim, because porpoises are air breathers, right? They need to come to the surface to breathe, but they eat underwater. So what do you have to do? You have to swim. You have to go up and down. Well, for anybody who's an engineer in the room, this is a multi-articulated joint. It's very complicated. And the neural pathways that control the various muscles, 
that, are, that create these multi-articulations in the appendages are very complex and layered. But Krakauer doesn't tell you that. Krakauer simply says, you're a porpoise, stay alive. You gotta eat underwater, you gotta breathe. You know what his success rate has been? Close to 90%. So clearly, his idea of using a game and creating something as a porpoise is gonna change how the medical profession treats severe stroke forever. And he's well on his way toward convincing a good amount of the medical community in that, in that vein. But in addition, as modern medicine creates the largest number of elders in the history of the planet, continuing education to maintain brain plasticity among the elderly will become crucially important, as will maintenance of cognitive and motor skills. Behavior therapy using games has been shown to increase attention stamina in children with ADHD. The concentration required to succeed in the virtual environment has been shown to dramatically improve focus. In medicine, the magic mirror system for anatomy education was developed at the University of Munich to teach gross anatomy. The system uses a Microsoft Connect game controller to provide in-situ positional feedback with a custom database of MRI and radiographs mapped onto the viewer's body. This augmented reality system creates an x-ray view inside the user's body and facilitates anatomy education as well as diagnostic discussions between physicians and patients. So Microsoft viewed this effort as a logical extension of their own AR business and they partnered with Case Western University using their HoloLens system. Now, if you get a chance, feel free to go to YouTube and look up Case Western Reserve and Microsoft HoloLens and you will see some pretty damn impressive system technology of gross anatomy. And I'm a hell of a lot more impressed with the medical training of tomorrow than I am with today. But more importantly, Anima Res, a small German medical imaging company, saw what they were doing and they applied this AR technology to create what they call Insight Heart. You have the ability to go inside the heart, pull it apart, stick your finger in the ventricle, change the flow, look at occlusion, see what the differential is in the, out, in the outward rates. Understand? It's, it's, it's difficult to beat this from the standpoint of visually learning and creating what we talked about before, which are these associative contextual episodic memories. And they've been so successful in terms of this commercial medical training program that Insight Lungs is in the works. Augmented reality concepts are advancing surgery by allowing the physician to enhance anatomical features. So just to show you a little bit, see, overlaying is very important to better visualize patient anatomy. Simulation software even allows surgeons to practice an upcoming procedure on a phantom patient using the da Vinci. Now robotic surgery is becoming prevalent for a whole bunch of reasons. After practicing on the virtual patient, the surgeon can perform the surgery on the actual one with the added benefit of knowing that that patient's specific anatomy is known to them to minimize operative risks. These graphics assist the surgeon during the operation by superimposing anatomical structures such as a hidden organ or artery, which the surgeon has to locate or avoid. 
A computer tracks the robotic arm's location as well as the movement of the patient's organs in real time. And it executes or corrects for accuracy while calculating optimal surgical trajectory for entry and exit points for dissection, suture, cautery, and related surgical procedures. Now that sounds like a lot of verbiage, so I want to show you what that really means as applied in surgery. For those of you who are squeamish, close your eyes, but for those of you who are interested, take a look and look at what this surgeon does. And his French is a little, his English accent's pretty French heavy, but I think you can discern it. You see he's seeing the vein through the skin to cauterize it? Pretty cool, huh? So this ability to use real-time high-resolution graphics, specular lighting, superimposition, and deformation are all based upon powerful GPU hardware from manufacturers who specialize in rendering game software. There are a host of other logical areas that lend themselves. Runways approaching in days, same thing at night. Vehicle safety, maybe some of you have heads-up displays already in, in your vehicles, but the next generation will have things like this. Why is this important? Because on a visually foggy day, not only does it tell you where the road edges are, but that not too easy to see red thing over there is actually a deer. And the deer is going from here that way across the road. And the computer in the car has calculated that by the time the deer reaches there, you are going to be approximately there too, which is why the deer is in red. So heads up displays will very shortly be able to give you warning information, rain or fog. Not only that, but you can put $10,000 forward-looking infrared systems into every fireman's hands as long as they have something like a telephone. So the point is, is that you're applying this very sophisticated technology to the computers that are in your hand and using the wired network in order to accomplish this so that everybody doesn't have to have the physical $10,000 FLIR in their hand. The difference between AR and VR is that VR is a closed world where you're entirely uh, encompassed in the simulation as it unfolds. And AR is an open world, right? Where virtual things are superimposed upon real things. 
So while VR is incredibly powerful, I actually think that AR is going to be the larger market. As Apple, Google, Facebook, and other heavy hitters are all working on wearable computers to help moderate your experience in the world. These wearable computers require an active, not occlusive display. Now, the offshoots of early AR are spreading to other areas that use many games techniques and devices for entirely new purposes. Now, some of the uses are basic, such as augmented business cards, virtual real estate sales, things like that. But all of them are following historic trajectory for disruptive technologies. If you provide the tools and open the system, then you're going to allow creative chaos. And once you allow creative chaos, that's where innovation flourishes. So Facebook's 2 billion purchase of Oculus, and Google's you know, 542 million for Magic Leap, and Microsoft's HoloLens. There have been some hiccups here, but these companies see the future and they want to try and control it. So imagine wearing systems with embedded facial recognition and database access, geo-coordinate accuracy to less than a meter, augmented sight with night vision, enhanced binaural sound. You can apply it all different ways. Imagine walking through the ruins of the Roman Colosseum, having it come to life and a gladiator challenges you, or experience what it was like to sit in fear in a World War I bunker, waiting to go over the top and you hear bullets ricocheting all around you. Imagine the lessons to be learned from this once boring history to the current generation where they're provided a context and the opportunity to experience some of the events for themselves. The Internet of Things is another technology influenced by games that will provide big data to track and measure almost anything. Maps overlay in front of you, preferred routes and distances are calculated, lights timed, traffic avoided, infinite routes to shopping, restaurants, parks, play, signs or roadways that appear illuminated in bright sun or night, rain or fog, customized to your vision requirements. Other logical applications will be things like security. Now, why is this an issue? Think about it. Where high magnification cameras can scan 1,000 faces a second at 100 meters while cross-referencing criminal and terrorist databases? If a threat's perceived, it automatically calls for SWAT teams. Now, along with continuously updated locations of suspects, the implications are enormous. And you can deny it, but you can't get away from it. Push forward a few technologic generations. Think of the social change in a society where everything you see can be analyzed computationally. It's the embodiment of sociologist Pierre Lavie's hive mind, of which he wrote 20 years ago in his book, Collective Intelligence. Around the world, the concept of intellectual property and privacy will be challenged by technologic assault. But for all the bumps, there may be some pearls, similar to the end of 19th century Wild West, where bank robbers counted on the lack of awareness by local law enforcement. So the new West will usher in a time when physical violence is rapidly exposed and unprofitable. Your local societal misfit will have to have a PhD in computer science or find another trade. Society may well become more peaceful and even honest, if for no other reason than fear of instant identification to an appropriate public or private video screen, frozen assets, public transport denial, rapid capture. Next generation screens will be flexible and thin as a sheet of paper. Embedded sensors will allow screens to camouflage into the background, show your personal art preference, morph onto an entertainment display. AR overlays can provide augmented capabilities such as night vision, magnification. Your glasses will also facilitate translation of language. Online support using graphic overlays will help you perform repairs for those few connected devices unable to repair themselves. Imagine a two-dimensional screen, two-dimensional, that allows you to feel three-dimensional surface structure while manipulating virtual images. 
while you wouldn't normally think of it, Disney's already demonstrated and patented a technology that replicates tactile surface depth on flat screens. While Oculus is in the news, there are many hurdles to be overcome if virtual reality is to take hold. Field of view, ultra-high resolution, synchronous pupillary tracking and orientation, and appropriate environmental feedback. We're not there yet, but there's genuine potential in the area for a real-time immersive experience. Haptic feedback using force to mimic various real-world effects. Taken to extremes, it could allow many of the tactile feelings that we were taught to expect with the holodeck of Star Trek fame. Not there yet again, but many are working hard to make transmission of physical presence a new reality. Realistic three-dimensional environmental situation works because if we learned earlier, the brain's opiate receptors derive pleasure from environmental changes. As we improve our ability to replicate environments dimensionally, the brain makes additional connections within the neocortex, enhancing its associations and retention. More importantly, these sophisticated former laboratory products that were wildly expensive are starting to become available to the public. Okay, so I'm not going to give you the full advertisement. I hope you don't mind. But we know that visual retention occurs literally as fast as we see it. The result is reinforced memory, which equates to learning. This is another reason why this area holds such great potential. So we're all products of human evolution and wired the way nature decided was important for survival. 
But as we couple our innate capacities to the power of computational media, imagination is unbound. And we're free to play with things in the real world as well as the virtual one. And the most amazing part of it is that if we do it well, our brains do not perceive any difference. Arthur Clarke was right when he said that any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So, welcome to the magic show. Thank you. The reason that I showed you the looking glass um, ad, as it were, is because for any of you that are familiar with Unity or Blender or M, for instance, this is now becoming, a commo it's becoming commoditized. And you know that when hyper-technology becomes commoditized so that you can buy it, use it off the shelf, now we're getting somewhere, okay? It's coming out of the laboratory. And as I said, this is, this is the chaos that we're looking for. The chaos is throw it out there, let the crazies get at it, and something good is going to happen, okay? Uh, slightly redefined, you're the crazies, okay? The point is, is this is what we talk about when we're talking about looking for the Mozarts. We're looking for the people like you, largely next generation, who are going to take the tools and technologies that impressed people of yesterday, and they're not so impressive to you today, okay? Color television sets are not impressive to you. There are some people in the room, I'm looking around, where color television sets were pretty damn impressive in their day. Everything is relative. Everything is within a context. So that's the point that I'm really trying to get across. The tools are here. The computation is coming in. You're learning. You're of the right generation, right? People are commoditizing a lot of this stuff. And it really is, it's, a, it's foundationally based upon your own imagination because you have the ability to do some of this. And by the time you have something that's really looking pretty good, if you do it right, the exascaled computation is just going to mate, just going to mate with you, okay? And when you're doing something that's better than 10 to the 18th at any particular second, that's a lot of horsepower, a lot of horsepower. For anybody who's been working in computers, like as long as I have, that was unimaginable. When we, I mean, we used to build here a long time ago. When the, when the dinosaurs ruled, ruled the earth. Uh, we used to use and build S100 boards. Most of you don't even know what an S100 board is, but it's big. S100 boards is big. So the point is, is when you think that a 200 megabit, megabyte CDC drive had 12 different layers looking like large platters, and the, the top eight were removable, the, four, the, the bottom four stayed, they were as, as big as that desk over there, and when you got a head crash, that was because the magneto-resistive head dropped and it crashed across the disk. You could see the gauge in the disk, okay? So that's when a head crash was a head crash. The, the point being that everything is contextual. And you're going to have the ability to have all of these things coming together at the time that your imagination is right there. And that's why I think that between your capacity, the tools that are becoming available, and, and the kids that have to learn about the 21st century, there's really something there. Because I don't see how, how kids can learn in the 21st century with the Industrial Revolution's way of teaching. I just don't. I don't think it's going to work. So that's where you come in. Okay? All right, I gave you my spiel. I'm getting off the, the little 
You want to hear about the Smithsonian or you want to ask questions? On what media? I mean, the quick answer is I sure hope so. Because the, the, way, the way most media is going right now is, there's a reason that media in the time of Walter Cronkite, I don't know if you know that name, he was very well respected when the, when the concept of a news cycle was roughly 12 to 24 hours. And you could have these journalists from, who came out of World War II and had learned you know, under the Morrow School to basically double and triple source and things like that so you wouldn't have these wide you know, implications of people wanting to be first, right? So in the ideal world, things like what OpenDoc is doing that, that Professor Yurikio and others are working on, uh, coupled with some Im improved computational capability for spidering, where you, know, you can discern what's urban legend and what isn't, so somebody starts typing something. I heard that you know, the Tower of Pisa straightened yesterday, you know what I mean? And it comes back and it says, no. You know what I mean? So could that happen? Absolutely. There's no question that it has to improve. How it's going to improve, I don't know. Needs improvement. Just not sure how it's going to occur. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's really a compound question. Let me try and answer the first part of it first. <clears throat> I actually would disagree with you about where it's located. I think that these emergent technologies are emerging in places you would never believe. I had a conversation an hour ago about what's happening in Bogota. So Bogota has a huge amount of VR. Who would have thought? Okay? So, so the point is, is that, I, that I think that with distribution, computation, and other things, it's very difficult for governments to prevent emergent technologies from emerging. Now, there are places, for instance, in Africa that don't have access to, um, to uh, terrestrial wiring, you know, uh, or microwave uh, transit for certain kinds of internet, just as an example. But um, one of the fascinating uh, temporary fixes you know, Google and some others are actually looking at low Earth satellites, LEO satellites, to basically have very cheap satellites and basically replacing these very large satellites at uh, 23,000 in arc angle, maintaining a specific place relative to the Earth. Um, that's the business, quite frankly, that Arthur Clarke had originally envisioned in 1947. But these new low Earth orbiting satellites are going to be dirt cheap, and there are going to be thousands of them. So you'll be able to get the information that you want relatively cheaply put up by private enterprise for their own purposes. But the ancillary aspect of it is, is you can be in the middle of nowhere and you can actually get signal. 
um, temporarily what they're doing is they're using buses to transit through areas in places in Africa, for instance, that will th that you'll have the local servers saving all of the information like email and stuff like that for the bus to come by. And when it's in range, it basically transfers to the bus and the bus has its own server on it. And it basically does the transmission, stores, and it goes to the next town where it transfers to an ISP. And that's how it gets out. I mean, so the point is, is it sounds a little bit crazy and Mickey Mouse, but it works. So th the point that I'm making is, is this is why the chaos, this is why chaos is really important. It's because it's very difficult to keep people from being creative if you give them the tools. And the tools don't have to be overly sophisticated. So this is what I mean about, I think you'll be surprised at how rapidly this is able to be discharged. Gover you know, autocratic governments are having a lot of trouble keeping people from using certain kinds of devices. They don't like it. Tough. You know what I mean? I mean, Samuel Morse had the same problem in Russia with the Tsar, but that's a whole different story. The Tsar thought that, it, that Morse, that what, be, what became the telegraph, the Tsar basically had him escorted out, not thrown out, but escorted out. Why? Because he had recorded that he found it was the greatest instrument of sedition that he'd ever seen. That's a very smart Tsar. Okay? So that's kind of the answer. Yeah? Not unless there's money. Not unless there's money. Games companies, so generally games companies, including Bethesda. Um, so it, that's part of a longer discussion, but the bottom line is, is that there, there are, most of the old timers in many ways are gone for one reason or another. And I don't mean gone as in passed on. I mean gone as in doing other things. Next chapter. The ones that I know who are still doing it are very interested in the next generational aspect. But the younger ones who are coming up are so fascinated with their power of creating games that the illusion is, is that they convince themselves that that's what's important in the world. So until they get a little more maturity in terms of what they're creating, you know, what's your legacy going to be? That you created, you know, Madden? That's the legacy? Do you know what I mean? In other words, people talk about it because it's kind of a prurient interest, you know? What did the guy do? Oh, he created Madden. Cool. You know what I mean? But in terms of its lasting value, other than making a lot of money for electronic arts, what's the lasting value? You know, is it that we're using physics engines to do other things? Yeah, potentially. But it needs to be applied somewhere else. So the point is, is that most games companies today, um, except for very few, are run by people who are focused on making money from games. And as long as they're focused on that, they're not open to a lot of these other very valuable aspects. However, the nice thing is, is that by putting their games out there and creating this, this, these generations that come up playing the games, the games themselves are no longer as fascinating because they become contextual to the audience. Just as an example, you, the vast majority of you, those of you who are under 50, okay, I'm limiting myself. Um, you're, the, you're the most video sophisticated group in the history of mankind. Think about it. 
by the time you're 18 or 19 years old, you've watched somewhere between 40 to 50,000 hours of video. That makes you, if, if you believe Gladwell, and you look at outliers, you've got way over your 10,000 hours. So you guys are Olympic in terms of your appreciation and understanding on a subliminal level, as well as liminal level, for visual contextual associations. Remember what we were talking about? Episodic memory transmission, right? You actually have stored all that crap in your brains. You just can't get at it really easily. Eventually, people will help you do that. But the point that I'm making is, is that when you start thinking about this in the larger global context, I'm not so interested in the games companies. The game companies are basically the fomenters. They're the ones making the tools. They're the ones that are basically creating a little bit of the pull. I'm talking about that kid who was in the beanbag, who was actually, I happen to know this, looking at an astronomy kind of uh, game. And he's fascinated. Remember, remember him? He, he, we couldn't get him out of the beanbag. He wouldn't give up the computer. That's who I'm interested in. That's who I want to go after. That's the kid I want to train to be an engineer. Okay? Then we won't have to worry about all these questions about, do you think that games companies will apply themselves to other areas? Because the answer will be, who cares? Who cares? As long as people are making tools, and I got the chaos out there, I'm trusting to, to the ability of the populace to do these outlier things. Okay? I mean, MIT specializes in this. When I was here, I could never decide, did I want to be an engineer? Did I want to be like, did I want to be a chass? Did I want to be just in engineering? You know, in those days, you could get away with a little more murder than you can today. So I did both. Nobody said no. Okay, that's the point. So, you know, you start bifurcating your brain. You're interested in this, you're interested in that, you're interested in this. As long as you, you know, don't fail, they go, okay, get out of here. That's the way the Media Lab started. The Media Lab used to be called the Architecture Machine. If it wasn't for Jerry Wiesner, a name some of you may remember, it would never have come into being because it wasn't safe. It wasn't predefined, right? You understand this concept of predefined? Unless you know you're coming out with something successful that your investors will all look at and go, wow, that was really successful, that's good. Academia has its own balance thing going. And in those days, balance wasn't quite as important because Jerry Wiesner was an engineer. Jerry Wiesner was not a banker. Jerry Wiesner was not a lawyer, right? He was an engineer. So his attitude was like, cool, let's try it. Let's see what happens. The worst that happens is it blows up. See, there's a lot to be said for that. A lot to be said for that. And so this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the chaos. I'm very interested in chaos. I love chaos. I think that most people, if, if they come up against chaos and they're intelligent and they have certain things that they can do well, they figure out to get out of the chaos or to control the chaos or to use the chaos or to manipulate the chaos. So I'm, I'm a big believer in people. I think that people left to their own designs are pretty cool. Hi, Jim. Thanks, Jim. How do you yourself 
and grapple with the desire for like new cool stuff and building it and getting it out there and testing it with the fact that technology can now scale at a rate that can't have to be bad. Say the last part again. Can now scale. I feel like that the scale, the fact that we can scale technology, especially software, especially internet things, so quickly. You know, sometimes it scales to a large number of people, and people get hurt before we kind of realize it, and there's no bringing it back in. So in this era of scaling and exaflop, yep. whatever, how do we kind of balance those two? Well, so um, the the best answer that I can sort of give is is going backwards in technology history. Because if you want to go forwards, you really have to know something backwards about technology history. Um, did it make sense for uh, Edison to arrange to kill Topsy in the 1920s, uh, an elephant, using the alternating current of uh, George Westinghouse to demonstrate how dangerous what Westinghouse was doing was to human beings? Beats the hell out of me. I don't think it felt really good to Topsy. Topsy was a, was a circus elephant. And they have video of this. They have pictures of it. It's really terrible. But this was a marketing way to try and solve the current wars that were going on between AC and DC. So you have very similar things going on today. There, there's, you, can, you can sort of look at the waves if you know something about technology history. Um, uh, Sam Ford and I wrote a, wrote a uh, monograph on ethics, in a, using ethics within the internet a number of years ago, this is when uh, Henry had uh, put out, Josh had put out their book, and uh, we felt it was really important to talk about the ethics of, of the internet. It was, not a, it was not a popular subject at the time, and there, were, there was not a huge amount of interest in it. There's more interest in it now, because the issue is, is we have all this technology and it's scaling really fast. The problem is, is we're human beings, and human beings don't scale the way technology does. So how do we digest it? And the best answer I can give you is, is that if we don't kill ourselves in the process or destroy ourselves in the process or take an entire new generation and you know, make them all socially crazy in the process, um, we may pull back from it. But I think it's something that really needs to be asked as a question more and more. There need to be some limits applied. You know, I don't know about you, but I've been to restaurants upscale restaurants, and I've seen the parents and the two or three children, no one's talking to one another. They're all like, I mean, it's socially retarded. Nobody talks to one another. They're like texting their friends or playing a game. There's no communication whatsoever within the family. What, is, what the hell is going to happen to those kids 10 or 15 years from now? The, the answer is I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be good. So what do you do? You have to re-educate the parents, or do you have to do what you know? Do what uh, happens in generations where people say, "Well, my parents never took me to go backpacking, so I'm going to make sure to take my kids backpacking." Maybe that's the answer, uh, because so because societally, I don't think we're solving our problems really well right now. It seems that they're getting worse a lot faster than they're getting better. I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, I, because I don't think there's any way to, to get that, that genie back in the bottle, right? I mean, you look, at, you look at Facebook and Google and a lot of these other people, most people who are not computationally sophisticated have no idea what these people are doing. None. I mean, you know, there's a push in Europe. 
Uh, in this particular case, while Europe may be 10 or 15 years behind us in smoking regulations, they're about 10 to 20 years ahead of us in terms of internet regulations and the right to have your internet life removed because you have a right to privacy. You have a right to make mistakes. You have a right that when you were 13 years old and you did something stupid and you put it on video, it shouldn't, it shouldn't persist when you're 60, right? Is it going to happen? Well, GPDR's happened, so I hope that happens. And maybe eventually it'll trickle down back into the United States. But ultimately, it's your generation, not mine, who's got to basically start telling people, you know, your constituents, you have people who represent you. If this is really that important, you have to start writing your representatives and say, you know what? I'd actually like some privacy. You know what? I think there should be some ethics in the way we deal with one another because saying something anonymously and flaming somebody is really inappropriate. We wouldn't do that in real life. Why should we do it in anonymous life? But, you know, again, these are heady issues and they're going to have to be dealt with more from your, your side than my side. You know what I mean? Because you're the, you're the coming up generation. You have to control what you're going into. Right? Yeah? I want to pick up on that a little bit. So I'm, as you know, a historian and I like to use precedent to understand and predict how things might play out. Yeah. With the technology like the book in the 15th century, competing narratives to just standardize and help, or did this for about 100 years create absolute chaos until people figured out how to stabilize the contents of books and the, and the implications and the spread and all that? So 100 years is a long time for stabilization. If things moved slow, people survived. We survived as a, as a culture. But as technological turns accelerate, mm. and especially as they get a little bit exponential, which is the phase you're looking at, the reaction time, the cultural reaction time isn't quite there. Most of us, at least here, live our lives in kind of an elite setting where people are semi-rational usually about how this stuff works. But if we look at how these, these, these technologies and these networks are used outside our world, um, whether it's to disconnect from your family at the dinner table, or whether it's for the spread of, of, of um, disinformation, whether it's the disruption of the order, but you know, reaction times are pretty slow. We don't yet, I don't think, adequately understand the way social media works, let alone the kind of, you know, exponential stuff that you're talking about. So I think that's where certain caution comes from. And the question is, okay, we could write to our legislatures, but we know how glacially slow that is. Does this throw the onus back on the technology developer to sort of put the brakes on or put the rails on the technology? Or what, what is that? I mean, I think we're in a different ballgame than we have ever been in the past with this acceleration. What are, what are your no, I, listen, I agree completely. I think that there's a compression in terms of our logical reaction time. You know, when the, when the concept of incunabula first came out, the church, I mean, if you want to talk about the, you know, the largest business corporation at the time, the church, upon the initiation of, of printing presses and things like that, said, ah, this is a gift from God. They literally said, it's a gift from God. But then, as people started manipulating that gift from God, within about 75 years, the church said, oh, this was of the devil, right? Because, because they started losing control. So, you know, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and the issue is, is that there is a compression of reaction, and there's a hyper-acceleration of technology, and, you know, I, I mean, 
not that we're going to solve this today, but where does the responsibility lie to the greater part of society? You know, to, uh, to William's point, we've never been in this situation before. I mean, think about it. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, you could think that your, your colleague was an idiot to yourself, and maybe you told one other person, my colleague's an idiot. But that was the end of it, right? Your colleague was blissfully unaware that the two of you thought that they were an idiot. Today, 200 million people you don't know think your colleague's an idiot because you accidentally put so-and-so's an idiot. You know what I mean? And some spider program picked it up. That's not fair because you never intended to call your colleague out that way. You simply were applying social structure from yesterday to today, but it accidentally got caught in the web of tomorrow. But the real question is, is that how do we deal with it? Because historically, there have always been four transitional phases. There's the invention phase. There's the piracy phase. There's the large business phase, because the pirates steal from the inventors, who unfortunately almost always are penniless. The pirates start making money. And then the businesses, the real businesses, look at the pirates and go, hmm, there's money to be made here. Let's get into this. And they do it at the business, at that structural level. And then they basically put the pirates to shame in terms of the scale. And then the next thing that always happens after the business chapter is, ding, 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 the legislative chapter. Because the businesses go to the legislatures and try and enforce laws that keep the pirates out so that only the businesses make money. This happens over and over and over again in technology history. That's kind of why I went toward legislation, although we really are probably in the business chapter. You know, I mean, when you have two guys who created a company that was based on do no evil, right, that's remarkably evil, what the hell? You know, what are you supposed to do? And the answer is, is I don't know other than there being a groundswell from the users who start taking the position that it may be bad for the business, that they're going to punish the business. I mean, we have no problem moral shaming, you know, who's uh, giving money to this politician or that politician. Why aren't we doing it to the businesses and saying, you know what? We, we really do control our own data. We really do have certain rights to privacy. You guys have to start enforcing tools. It really should be opt-in, not opt-out, which is part of what is going on in Europe. It makes logical sense to us as users. It just didn't make logical sense to the business entities who were putting in the technology. But in fairness, for instance, with GBDR and other things like that, you now have to opt in. That's a major shift, right, in terms of the data collection. That's a great major shift, and I hope most of you don't, right, because it's your choice. But that's, that's what has to happen. The businesses have to see that there's a reason to be socially aware. They can pretend all they want. You ever, you ever notice what happens at Facebook? Every single time something goes wrong, Mark goes, ah, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. And then he does the exact same thing. So, you know, just moving the little bit. So why haven't we basically, you know, pilloried him, tar and feathered him, publicly shamed him? Okay? I mean, that's the best answer I can come up with is to make the businesses feel the pain, feel the hurt. Because if you interfere with their ability to make money, 
all of a sudden they're going to become socially aware. Sorry, that's the way it works. But the question is, to your point, how do we, how do you do that? Maybe use the internet for that purpose, you know, those petitions and other things. I have a petition I want to start. I want to know why the medical, not, not within university, of course, right? Because actually the MIT medical plan is not that bad. But the federal medical programs, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, I want to know why the representatives in the Congress don't have that same plan. Are you aware that they have a completely separate medical plan? And it's really good? And it pretty much pays for almost everything? Well, I mean, call me, call me dumb, but seems to me that if you want the entire plan to get better, you say to those guys, you work for me, and I want you to have what I have. Because if you have what I have, then you're going to make it better because you are very centric about yourself, right, and your family. So if you lift your boat, you're going to lift my boat. Why hasn't that happened? Why hasn't there been a massive petition in the United States for that? But I think that's what has to happen. You have to become more socially involved. I know, I know that people think they're very socially involved today, but in terms of some of the really big problems, I'm not sure I see it. The really big problems. You know, it's really convenient to talk about, you know, who's going to get into office this year or that kind of thing, because that's very close to us. But what about the stuff that affects 10, 20 years down the line? You don't see a huge appetite for that. You don't see that kind of social appetite. I wish, I wish there was. I wish there was a groundswell for that. But right now, I'm not seeing it. Maybe I'm wrong. What are we doing at the Smithsonian? We are basically taking an industry that was formed for all intents and purposes in the 1960s to 1980s. I mean, you can argue with it a little bit, but video games was pretty much formed around that time. Most of those people are still alive, and they have really good memories. And uh, anybody familiar with Space War? So Space War kind of started here for a whole bunch of reasons if you look up the history. We were able last November to get all seven remaining members of the original eight-member team of Space War together for the first time ever. They had never all been together, even at MIT. We got them together in the Smithsonian, and Professor Jack Dennis, emeritus, came down because he was the head of RLE at the time, and he had control over the PDP-1 computer that he let them use to create it. So that was a pretty cool night. We got it all on video. It's in the annals of the archive. We invited 150 people of stature in the industry, people who really had contributed to the industry. We got 300 people. We could not hold all the people we got. And you name any person of any consequence who's not 20 years old who's created a game of any note, they were there. In fact, my wife joked with me, if somebody bombed the Smithsonian that night, the entire industry would be decimated. It would never, would never rise again. But the point is, is these people who made millions, if not billions of dollars for their companies, came to pay homage to these seven guys who never made a dime from the industry. It was an amazing night. So that's what we're doing. We are recording the people who created the industry in their own words so that historians 
and researchers of the future don't have to rely upon books written by, forgive me, included in here, academics who are interpreting what the founders really meant. That's wonderful, but I'd rather read it without the translation. Thank you very much. So we ask the inside baseball questions that people 100 years from now might want to know. Because among other things, there are very unique characteristics to most of these people. Very unique characteristics. And so some of the questions far beyond games go to what can we what can we discern from these people that we might be able to pull out and teach to future generations in terms of innovation and invention? Is this something that's learned? Is it nature? Is it nurture? And the answer from what we're able to discern is both. And that's really exciting when you consider that there's a nurture component to this. And that's kind of what we're trying to tease out. So we're working with psychiatrists, sociologists, oral historians to basically deconstruct the industry into the people who created it and ask them the right questions so that they can give answers that people hundreds of years from now can take and capitalize upon. It's never been done before. It's the first industry to do it. So that's kind of cool. For some strange reason, they picked me to oversee this or start it. But you know, I feel like the 12th century stonemason building the church. You know what I mean? I know that I'm never, I'm, I'm starting the damn thing. I'm never going to see it finished. But that's OK. The church will eventually get built. You just have, you just have to believe. Yeah? Uh, besides baseball, what are the most important games in history? The most important? That's a tough one. I mean, it really depends upon what your kind of games are. You know what I mean? In, in general, um, the way that I would sort of generically answer that is any game that pushed the tools and technology to the next level that was enough to show other people who had expertise or people who were playing to reimagine to that next level so that they could go beyond it, that was a good game. P games, that are, games that are basically related to the previous game Right? I mean, I, I, well, it depends upon who was the first one. I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example from the, uh, from the personal library. So we created a game called Terminator 2029, which was not done in 2029. And um, we used a new concept that we came up with that we thought would be kind of cool for the player, which was first person POV down the barrel of a gun. Okay. And, you know, 2029 had good sales, great sales, good sales. But we showed it in Chicago at an uh, exposition. And these young kids from Texas, from this little company called ID, came by and looked at it for an awfully long time. And in fairness, as I told Carmack many years later when we bought them, uh, you guys took what we did and did it better. Okay, I think that's the best answer I can give you is, is somebody else capitalized on what we, show, what we kind of showed. They just thought about it on a better level than we did. And that's, that's really the process, right? Who's, because ultimately, who derives benefit from that? Users. You know, everybody up here is fighting and designing and, you know, out competing with one another on the battlefield. 
but the users are the ones who actually get the benefit. Anyway, listen, I know you're, I know this is keeping you kind of late, so if there's any like one burning last question, feel free. No, want to go home and go to sleep? When are you coming back? Great to see Chris. Can we skip to the industry question now? Eric, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Chris really pulled on his uh, piece of archaic uh, reference that was his Rolodex to pull in an amazing group of speakers and contacts. Good networking opportunity. Great mm. course. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank great you. Great to see you here. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you.